Thanks for listening to show 14 of the C-Suite podcast series. I'm Russell Goldsmith, and this time round, we're covering off public services with three highly influential guests from the sector. Here in the studios of Marketeers for DC are Bridget Ahern, who is not only Head of Communications and Administration at Nottinghamshire Fire and Rescue Service, but is also the CIPR and the Institute of Directors Public Relations Director of the Year. Sitting alongside Bridget is Chair of the CIPR's Local Public Services Group, Wendy Moran, who is Senior Lecturer in Public Relations at Manchester Metropolitan University Business School. And joining us on the line, we have Amanda Coleman, who is both Head of Corporate Communications at Greater Manchester Police, and is also the current Chair of the Association of Police Communicators. So, pretty impressive lineup, if ever we've had one. Uh, now, the reason I've managed to get Wendy and Bridget here to the studio in London is because yesterday they were at the CIPR's head offices in Russell Square for the launch of a local public services group new report which is called the influence for impact wendy do you want to give us a quick summary of what the report is all about and also how your event went last night yeah the event went really well and it was really the culmination of work and that we've been engaged in over the last few months as a committee so um, currently i'm chairing the local public services group so our remit is to represent and also provide training and development for communicators in the nhs local government fire and police so our job really over the last few months has been actually to go out and listen to what practitioners communicators all over the uk need us to be doing um, so we went out and asked what kind of issues they were facing and how we may be able to help them in the future in terms of training and development. So we ran focus groups and also we had a series of interviews with heads of communication and organisational leaders. What was fascinating for me when I read and listened to the transcripts was that although there is great diversity amongst these different organisations and certainly in terms of austerity some have suffered more than others, there were themes that came out again and again right across the different um, people that we were talking to and interviewing and the top one across really all of them was um, influencing and reading the report and going through all the information that we collated it became very clear that actually in public services we're moving away very clearly from almost a, a model where of delivery and tactical communication to a very extreme sense purely influencing because for many they've lost teams the budgets have been sliced right back so uh, communication is being disseminated throughout organizations and employees are doing a lot of what communicators have done in the past so at that extreme end it's the influencing part that's there yeah. it's almost a new paradigm well, we're going, to, we're going to pick up on a few of those things that you've just mentioned, hopefully throughout the uh, the podcast. I'll sort of get Amanda and, and Bridget's uh, sort of perspective from working in the sector. How, how was the event last night? Was it obviously the two of you were um, presenting there, I think? Yeah. It was great. We had some really interesting speakers. So Sarah Pinch, the president, opened and she's done an awful lot this year. I should year. say president of the CIPR. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but she's done an awful lot this year in championing yeah. um, communicators working in this sector who do come under a lot of flack from uh, certain groups. Um, and it is an important role that we all do in communicating the services that are being offered so she gave a great opening speech and then we had David Holstock from the local government association giving his perspective and they've just recently done some research with heads of communication around the impact of budget cuts on communication so that was great really in 
giving a context. And Adrian Roxon from Sheffield Hallam, he came and gave his early findings from research they've been doing, again, giving that context. And then, of course, we had Bridget's. And I kept mine quite short at the end because <laughs> what was interesting is that all these different voices from around the country, the academia perspective, the perspective of the CIPR president, true local government in David Holstock and then me in the Fire and Rescue Service, we're all experiencing the same things. And, and when we think about what we're here for today and social media, that resonates with me, which is we're not holding all the, the sweets anymore, we're sharing the sweets and, and telling people how to eat them. It's all about how we influence and not doing it all ourselves. Well, so well, well, that, it was short. <laughs> yeah, well, that leads n- nicely into the, into my sort of next question because obviously the, the report features um, a lot of, in your report is tied into the issue of uh, what's described as digital transformation. And one of the things that it says, it, it highlights the new environment demands engagement and influence rather than attempting to control communication and, and reputation. So sticking with you, Bridget, just for a second, maybe you could expand a little on, maybe tell us how things are adjusting at uh, Nottinghamshire Fire and Rescue you know, to this whole new environment. Very much the experience that Wendy's described, which is we, we have traditionally run all mass communications, really. Um, so if it's, if it's not face-to-face or it's not uh, answering a 999 call, corporate communications have been responsible for uh, writing press releases, liaising with the media, tweeting tweets, posting Facebook posts. And that's got to change. It can't... It can't continue like that. There's, people use these tools as too too much part of their daily lives for them to be controlled by one small group of people. We haven't got the resource we never had and we're certainly not going to expand in, in the face of budget cuts. So we might not need to have slightly different skills as communicators and be a little bit more strategic and have a greater range of um, thought processes in terms of what channels we think we might advise other people to, to use and then the actual using of them is about other people doing it. What I find is it falls into two schools of um, colleagues, really, that I'm trying to influence. People who are really gung-ho and wanting to kind of run before they can walk almost, and it's brilliant. It's about harnessing that excitement and energy for using these tools and ensuring that they work towards organisational objectives. Um, So really thinking about how they use it and are part of the organisational story rather than just their watch or their station. And then we've got people who, not in a disrespectful way but are actually probably quite terrified of these tools because they're used to having a dedicated professional with media law training and all those other things that we communicators have traditionally had they're used to somebody else controlling those tools who've got all that expertise and they're really frightened of taking them over from us so when you think about influence that's a great range of people to have to make an impact on to do it differently. Well, you've mentioned tools and channels there. I want to bring Amanda into the into the conversation now. I mean, obviously, thank you for sending me a copy of the report, which I managed to read um, beforehand. And and again, something else that I picked up in there, it says organisational leaders expect communicators to be deeply knowledgeable about the ways in which, you know, to engage with the public at a hyper local level. So just picking up on what Bridget, you were saying there with tools and, and channels, maybe Amanda, could you kind of share some information or give us anything on, on how you're achieving that and what tools you're using at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the, the key for us is to understand what people are using and that changes. So, I mean, this is a kind of movable feast, really. In terms of social media, Twitter and Facebook are still our main our kind of mainstays. And we've got more than 100, we've got 102 accounts for the force, which means that we do Twitter to quite a very um, local level. To achieve it, we've had to train more than 500 or so police officers and staff and that we equip them and give them the, the kind of uh, understanding that we can around media law and social media and what they need to be aware of. 
and trust them to do it. Um, and I always say, you know, at the end of the day, we trust some of these people with batons and um, potentially weapons. So, you know, we, we've got to have the trust in them to use social media. And yes, sometimes we will have issues and sometimes the risks, you know, come through. Um, but, you know, nine times out of 10, everything that they do is fine. So for me, those are our mainstays at the moment. They might not be in a year or two years time. Sure. We, but- we just have to keep constantly looking at it but something like twitter in particular you know when there's a live situation you know happening and i can imagine there being quite a lot of uh, activity on there how, how are you managing those channels in that situation i mean it is really difficult we've had a few kind of high profile kind of incidents we've had to deal with and for us it's you know you've got to rewrite your emergency plans emergency plans are, are are very traditional and Bridget probably will back me up that, you know, an incident happens, we wait for the media to then phone us, at which point we've probably worked out exactly what we're going to say. We will then put the information out and it'll all be kind of neatly packaged over the kind of preceding hours. But it doesn't work like that anymore. And what we've seen with social media is obviously the incident happens and it was on social media before any of the media actually bothered to contact any of the emergency services. So for us, you know, we constantly monitor um, if we've got issues and incidents, then we'll be keeping an eye on them before, it, you know, kind of erupts on social media. The the other thing is the operational side, because picking up on, on kind of what was been said before, whilst we are imparting communications knowledge within the team here, we're also taking on operational responsibility, finding information and intelligence off social media to support our intelligence people who are doing the same thing. You know, we are no longer just a, a kind of a, just a comms team or a comms team. We we do a huge amount more in terms of services and service delivery. Right. Brid- Bridget was nodding away at a few things that you were saying there. It's, it's very similar experiences, I, I take it. Yeah, and I, I had the fortunate experience of working with Amanda and knowing that they were quite early adopters. So I experienced that shift quite personally. But I'm experiencing it again at Nottinghamshire, um, who, you know, it's, it's, it's no disrespectful position to to say that my team were working in quite traditional ways when I arrived and we saw the difference that social media could make and the and the very fact that the opportunity to operate in that traditional way of something happens, we then prepare what we're going to say, wait for the media to contact us and we've got this perfectly polished statement. That doesn't exist and around the time I was appointed, um, there was quite a large fire at a recycling site Nottinghamshire Fire and Rescue Service was doing absolutely everything they can to to fight that fire, but it's a complex situation. You can't always send firefighters into that environment because of the the dangers involved in it. And we just weren't joining the discussion. Um, you know, we weren't there where social media was concerned. We had no no skills either in the team, and no one in the wider organisation was using it. So um, we saw then that the conversation was being had on Twitter. Um, people were complaining about the fact that they thought nothing was happening. The media then picked up on that. The media interest exacerbated the situation in public, which then led to people feeling even more angry. So it was a whole cycle of things where you could see exactly what Amanda's just described in in operation, the fact that that old environment doesn't exist. So we've now got to be part of it. And interestingly, on my way down here yesterday, my colleagues had quite a, a large fire to deal with. And the conversation, the what what we knew was happening, was there along with public's photos of a great big smoke plume and and what people were tweeting towards East Midlands today and BBC Radio Nottingham, my team was part of the conversation as well and saying, yeah, we've got this in place, we're doing X, Y and Z to remedy the situation, we need you to close doors and windows. So we're actually influencing the public around their safety and understanding of what's going on to keep them safe. Are you you seeing any good feedback that comes from that, from the public? Do you you get feedback from 
communication like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting that two years ago they, they were saying, you're letting us burn, you're doing nothing, and you can have an identical incident almost two years later. And because you're telling people what you're doing, they're going, brilliant job, thanks team NFRS. And it's just a case of having the conversation with yeah, people. Yeah. And in, in some ways it doesn't seem that difficult. On the flip side of that, on what I think you describe as peacetime, uh, yeah. so when you haven't got a live situation happening, wh- where does the, the focus shift in terms of social media? So, for example, using you know social media for communication about prevention of crime or fire in, in you know both of your cases, for example, or, or is it more of a listening perspective? You know, seeing what conversations are taking place. A bit of both, because the obviously we know we're going through massive public sector reform, and we need to shift people's opinions of of what the fire and rescue service is to help them understand that we've got a prevention function so there's a wide corporate uh, purpose in terms of let's be part of the conversation and let people see that we're doing prevention work then let's move on once they understand that we're there to prevent incidents as well let's move it on to actually achieving the behavior change or nudging them towards it through those channels so yeah it's a bit of audience building i, I want us to get some more listening um, i'd like to think we, we do do some listening but my view is that personally i don't think i do enough um, in my organization and, and amanda how about in your case yeah, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want everybody to agree because it'll be very dull. But um, <laughs> it's very similar. Here. We, ongoing, we we do. I think we do a lot of listening, um, and that's because we have to. We've we've kind of over the last five years have built a following through social media of people who are quite happy to say things, um, and will challenge us and will ask questions. So we do need to listen if we're going to develop the conversation further, and we're going to make sure that we can continue to build. Uh, hopefully during the kind of peacetime or when the when the riots aren't happening you can build that goodwill for when you do need people to come forward so for us it's very much around that the the other key in terms of policing is to get people to understand that police officers are people um, they are doing a job they're not you know a uniform they are a real person so we we try and do a lot of behind the scenes when it's you know when you've got the time to mm. when you can show what happens on a daily basis from quite mundane things through to you know the more interesting things we we try and find ways to show that so but it's a, a daily conversation and i suppose the challenge as we go forward is staffing that to ensure that you know you can be as responsive as possible through it of course yeah wendy obviously the group at the ci or your group at the crpr covers more than just emergency services which is what we're currently talking about is is digital transformation how's that impacting on on other communicators within the public services sector i would say uh, taking local government and they were predominantly the most the, the greatest number of people that we engage with in this project Digital has brought heightened expectations, that's what people are saying. With smaller teams, um, they're finding it really hard to do everything. So that digital is being delivered often by other members of staff throughout the organisation, which um, is quite difficult for official communicators who have actually set up um, channels and it's about them letting go but also monitoring what's going on throughout the organisation and there's an element obviously of, of risk there so that's the challenge I think this transition period where they're almost letting go and engaging with staff to try and you know make sure that everybody is you know online with the organisational yeah. messages it almost it's that case now that every single employee in the organisation, they are a communicator. You know, it's let go of the reins, but obviously the job of those that are 
the communicators that are in post is to influence that you know everybody throughout that organization yeah. that, that's the thing that actually that's... comes through in quite a few of the podcasts actually obviously mm. in, in all sectors and in internal comms as well one of the key themes i suppose that comes through the the report is that of budget cuts and you know those or the cuts putting pressure um, or greater pressure on on you know the communicators within your sector how do you see digital and social tools helping ease that pressure if if at all at the moment it seems to be putting greater pressure on the people that we spoke to in terms of delivery and managing the change but then obviously you know the opportunities with digital really enhances the way that organizations can communicate so several people we spoke to talked about how they're now running campaigns with more insight cross-cutting campaigns so long term you know that's say producing savings for the organization but um that takes sort of time to set those things up to get familiar with them and a lot of feedback we've been getting is that actually a lot of communicators are simply being reactive at the moment so part of our work will be to share that good practice which is going on to get people up to speed sure amanda are you seeing any uh, sort of pressure on on in you know for your team there and and the digital tools make help in that sense well when we started to really push um into using digital sort of say five years ago we took a cut of about 30 percent um in terms of staff and resources so we did see a massive benefit because we could do a, a huge amount with fewer people by utilizing the kind of digital opportunities and that's worked really well i think this now sort of five years on and, and where we are at the current um state of play with the potential of quite significant cuts coming um, over the next year, uh, I think we're starting to now feel some more pressures in terms of using digital. And it comes mainly from uh, organisations really looking to move services online. So we, we've been very focused on the engagement elements. It's moving forward now into service delivery. It makes the engagement then even more critical that, that we ensure everything's right. So I think that's where our pressures are starting to come really now is is from we've done quite a bit. It's helped hugely and we've now put more information out as an organisation than at any point in the in the past um, with fewer centralised comms people by utilising, you know, everybody in the organisation. But it is that point where it's it's becoming incredibly challenging. Likewise, I I see opportunities around service delivery. You know, we, we still do home visits, home safety checks. We go out to an awful lot of people. We um, tour their home to help them identify risks. In some cases, we even put smoke alarms up for them. I see no reason why we couldn't use Skype for Business or Link to, to do that same job and perhaps maximise that staff time. So it's not saying you won't get personal contact, but personal contact doesn't necessarily mean turning up on your doorstep That's anymore. interesting, actually, because one of the... What I was going to ask was, has this created new ways of working? So I suppose things like that has, has changed the approach a little bit, like yeah, say Skype. And... And, and we're not doing that yet, but that's certainly something I see the potential of, which is let's let's redefine what a personal visit is. It, you know, it still might be talking someone through their home so we can react and respond to them in a way that you wouldn't get by sending them a leaflet or just them, them doing it online themselves. But is that need for travel absolutely necessary? So there's, there's things like, like that I can see the potential of. I do think I agree with Wendy's point around the insights that uh, digital tools 
particularly social media, what what they can tell you about different material because I think sometimes we have had to perhaps promote messages that we know haven't been tailored in the right way, don't engage people properly. Digital tools give you very instant feedback on what you know your audience is like and don't like and want to converse with and want to engage with or just want to share. So um, I think that's really useful and, and it helps us make the case around not doing things that are unnecessary anymore because we've really got to make sure we are giving maximum value for money. Okay. Um, I want to move on to another topic that the report raised, and that's of um, reputation management and the fact that digital channels deliver criticism uh, directly to the public services. Now, um, I'll admit I have perhaps taken to Twitter <laughs> occasionally, or well, certainly <laughs> once, um, You know, so, and, and quite a few of us guilty of, of doing the same, You know, to have a moan about something that uh, we might have uh, had an issue with with our local public services at some point. Um, Wendy, how, how should public service communicators respond when it comes to this kind of issue or problem? Well, actually, I think this is where, again, it comes to that whole letting go and trusting members of staff throughout the organisation to deal with queries, criticisms in the way they would coming through other channels. Helen Reynolds I interviewed a couple of years ago and she's great on this and, um, you know, she's very much about, it's all about A, recruiting the right people in the beginning, you know, so you've got the right people and then enabling them. It shouldn't really be different to any other channel. Um, I, I've got a bit of a personal experience when I was a more tactical communicator around, and, and it goes back to that point around building a good positive audience in peace times. I decided to try something a little bit different around Cooking Fire Safety Month, did a bit of a chat around uh, everyone's favourite pancake topping on pancake day. And it, I, I kind of went with the 80-20 rule and just let the discussion run and ever so slightly put the odd safe cooking tip in, in the official one that in the official stuff that I was tweeting. And a retired firefighter kind of jumped on it and said, why aren't you tweeting about incidents? We don't want to hear this nonsense. We want to hear about... And for me, that that's potentially straining to reputational risk. And I was scratching my head thinking, oh, two really important audiences here. Everybody's really engaged in this discussion about pancake recipes and stuff. And it doesn't sound earth-shattering, but it, it was a really fun, energetic conversation. Retired members are a really important audience to us because they are people who worked with us for 30 years, gave really good long service and are are very often advocates for us in the community. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, need a minute to think how to answer that. And then I didn't need to. The audience themselves jumped in on it and said, leave them alone. You know, this is a different way of getting safety messages across. It's the best chat I've ever had with Manchester Fire. And it was brilliant because it was that ground truth and there was nothing I could have said that would have articulated it in a way that was any better than the yeah. two audiences kind of meeting and finding their own way through it. So I think it reinforces the point of building a building a good positive audience during peace times because that might help you because those people may become your advocates if you do get a bit of a, a knock or a criticism. Can I just jump in as well? No, one, please, yeah. Because I think one of the most critical, and Bridget's right, you know, you do build your kind of audience and, and they are advocates and, and we see that and that's really helpful because you don't want to get involved. But I think there's another element which is about when you go back to influencing within the organisation is that you have to make sure that senior people are prepared to accept some of the risks and are not going to go uh, jumping up and down on people, particularly if you're empowering them to use social media on the front line. They have to accept that there will be times things don't work out 
but as long as it's you know something that you can deal with um, and kind of mitigate as best you can then you know it shouldn't lead to somebody being mm-hmm. disciplined um, that's something we've really stuck to because as I say we, we rely on these the 500 or so officers to be putting information out and anything that they kind of do and often it's a sense of humour that doesn't quite translate or more importantly it's a sense of humour that the officers have that the public like but the media don't so for us yes we may get some headlines in the daily mail uh, particularly but but let's live with it because the ref, what we're getting back in terms of the positives outweigh those but it's something you've got to sell to to the senior people otherwise it'll stop in its tracks because people won't take yeah. the risks for you just out of interest what was your favorite uh, pancake recipe bridget i think i went for something savory like a, a tomato thing yeah a bit unusual like that <laughs> um no but it's just made me think in terms of you're talking about that so there's obviously two big events coming up with halloween and uh, bonfire night where you've got candles and then fireworks and so are you going to be doing similar kind of things in terms of safety chats around things like that it it would be remiss not to do anything um I'm, I'm pleased to say that in Nottinghamshire we've got um, quite a good track record of community engagement around, um, that's a, it's a bit of a posh phrase, isn't it, Commun- but people being really supportive of the services, so going to official displays, you know, there's, there's not a big antisocial behaviour problem around Halloween and, and trick-or-treat, that kind of thing. But we but still I was thinking more in terms of safety, because you had the issue last year with, and I can't think of her name, but from um, Strictly... where oh, the, Claudia. Her, yeah, and her daughter's mm. dress catching fire. And absolutely, that's it. We, we're we not remiss and we don't, you know, we don't waste these diary days to kind of reinforce that again. And I know yeah. uh, the Chief Fire Officers Association have actually done a really good job of getting a grip of that at a national level. And, um, you know, you might think they're more about lobbying, but they get very involved in the safety agenda because they know that matters and it's important and to unite and do it across all the services in the country, we, we make a bigger impact. So, yes, we are taking those opportunities. Yeah. Amanda, do you, do you pick up on the diary dates as well for things like that? We, yeah, we do. And we work really closely with um, with other agencies. So, you know, we try and support each other as much as we can. And, and again, that's where digital gives you some opportunities to, to be really really um, supportive and share things and and make best use of kind of various audiences that people have got and we also I mean we all we do that with with kind of events like that but we also do it for things like the back to the future day so we try and find something that we can share with people as part of that because it's what people are talking about so we do try and stick our noses into other people's business quite a lot. (laughs) Excellent. Um, Now Bridget in the report uh, you are quoted as saying uh, that you must find ways of demonstrating your impact And the report goes on to state that organisational leaders expect communicators to harness the information available from digital analytics to segment, understand, engage uh, or engage with and monitor change amongst audiences. So basically, I was keen to find out how you monitor, um, how you're evaluating your use of social media in particular. I'll be honest and say I don't think I've got it right and I don't think I'm perfect by any means, but... There's a number of things that you can look at. You know, you you would look at your number of followers. You know, so you do the traditional numerical stuff. Are we building an audience steadily? What are the things that um, CEOs suddenly get a peak in followers? You know, is it off the back of an incident and what we did with it? So, or or did we do nothing with that incident and it was just the sheer interest in that incident? That's about the right followers as well, isn't it? Absolutely. So, I I would rather have four hundred. Facebook likes than 4,000 if it was the right 400 people and that's something I've always maintained. So you've got to look at sentiment, how you measure behaviour change. 
that's that's the difficult step and I think we've got to start achieving it because really was it the tweet was it the visit that someone had from a firefighter was it um, the leaflet was it the advert that they saw in the newspaper or was it all of those things so that's where evaluation gets into I think Academics call it kind of like level three evaluation. And it's really difficult to say what influenced someone, but we've got to keep trying to to see where digital fits into that. Yes, yeah, certainly. Academics and practitioners know there is no silver bullet. It's how do you ever isolate the effect of PR, isn't it, from all the other things that are going on in the environment. But in this context, everybody's recognising more than ever the importance of demonstrating the value of what we're all trying to do at the moment. So, yeah, the will is there. It's tricky for, for everybody across yeah. all industries. I think, and, and sorry to cut across you, I think it, it could be useful to look at it from internal comms, uh, for example, because if your chief officer has a blog, now our, our chief officer gets a really high number of hits on, on his blog on the intranet. Um, it's it's the most read page apart from the page that automatically pops up when people log on. What I want to, to get to do, and again, I haven't done it yet because of resources, but I would love to measure sentiment um, and, and kind of have four qualitative questions that I would ask people before he publishes and then again after to see how people's attitudes internally have changed because you know your audience, that you, you really know who the message has gone to and that they've seen it and it, it might have you know you can really control it in that environment so that's the kind of thing that I'd start to, to like doing is really address internal comms and perhaps that could give us some um, useful hints tips and tricks to apply the same principles to external communications. Amanda how deep into the analytics and the evaluation do you go? Not as much as I would like to to be fair I think there is I do have concerns around automatic sentiment analysis tools because I don't think you can trust it to um, machines yet to gather accurate data around sentiment. So to be fair, in terms of how we use it, yes, we look at the numbers. We also do some of that, um, how good are the conversations? So every quarter we do a review of the, all of the 102 accounts and there are proper actions that come out of it. So where it's working well, we can see it and we know why. Um, we can share the good practice, but then we can also say, well, look, if you, if this encounter isn't working, then why have we got it? Let's, you know, mothball it. Let's look at some, another way of using it. Are the right people on it? So that quarterly evaluation goes to all the people that are using social media for us and also to all their uh, bosses. So at the end of the day, you know, they can see what, what's working and what's not working. And it's, it's quite a mammoth task, but it's vastly useful information. I mean, the, the other thing is obviously everybody's got, you know, much better analytics on specific channels. So, you know, they are incredibly useful to look at that. And I suppose the big thing for me that I'd like to, to kind of be able to move into, which is something that policing in America is looking at quite a lot, is predictive policing using social media. Okay. And there are ways you can do it and there are tools that can assist you. And, and uh, studies have shown, you know, that you can look at social media um, postings and overlay it with hotspot areas for crime and particular crime types. So for, for me, um, although this is moving into kind of a more operational element, it's important for us in terms of how we build audience and how we can look at what that audience is telling us to try and move into that, that way. And then demonstrating, as we've said a number of times, the value that you provide to the organisation really for me comes from, are we in this team helping to prevent and detect crime? Because if we're not, then, then you've got to question why we're here. So how far are we off uh, Minority Report then? 
Um, I went to a, I went to a, meet, a, a kind of seminar um, on Tuesday, which was all around predictive policing and various <laughs> things. And believe me, there are elements of it already in existence. So um, I wouldn't, but I wouldn't be scared by it. I would because there are big opportunities. There are big opportunities that of, of forces that have been able to uh, use facial recognition and lots of other things, and are getting good results and getting Christ, people gonna, arrested quickly. I'm, I'm going to take all my photos off social media. <laughs> um, is you all right as long as you haven't done anything? <laughs> something then I would worry uh, okay now um, quickly changing topic um, the we talked about budget cuts earlier um, I'm just thinking from a, the future of uh, local public services comms and particularly for training and development Wendy how do you see things developing in that respect well it's quite interesting again sitting here listening to Bridget Amanda there's some brilliant practice out there and what came through in this project is it is that networking that was one of the most important aspects of any training development actually getting together and meeting other people and having a chat and there's some wonderful work so it's about sharing that because everybody is up against it at the moment so it's it's identifying that really good practice and then sharing that. And what was interesting for me when we started to look into this project was that actually public sector, um, despite all the challenges that they've faced, are the sector above any other that feel most strongly about CPD, training and development. And you set that against the context of often no budgets for training and many of the people we spoke to are investing in themselves for training development and professional membership so it needs to be low cost it needs to be local and it needs to enable that networking that's where i see it i wholeheartedly agree i think training for us needs to be a mix of understanding how we move from being tactical to strategic. So um, how do we go from being someone who writes a press release or takes a photograph to actually thinking about all of those things and more and uh, advising to our chief on how we might talk to the chair of the authority or the government minister about it. And what I find is if I go to any course or training event, all of it is useful. Um, so whether it's something really tactical, whether it's something a bit more conceptual and strategic, combined with the fact that you're out there meeting other people, because I think one of the things about the budget reductions that we've faced is you're not having exposure to the same range of brains in your own organisation anymore. So it's about going out there and making that work. And I, the other big thing that I, I said uh, to quite a few people last night, perhaps not in my speech, but um, afterwards is let's not feel guilty about doing, because if we just sit there doing all these tool, new tools, channels, approaches, different styles of engagement are going to completely pass us by um, and we're not going to be fit for purpose and then we are going to have to restructure. So I think there's a healthy dose of be excited, be excited about new social media channels and what it could achieve for us and the fact that actually... Do we have to take a 999 call and just listen to somebody telling us their impression of it? Or could they just could we just hook into their phone and they broadcast it to us like uh, like with Periscope so we can then um, predetermine the attendance based on that? So let's be excited about things like that, but let's also be fearful and let that drive us in terms of wanting to get training yeah. and feeling guilt-free about going for training. That's a great idea. Uh, Amanda, any, any thoughts on that in terms of development? Yes, I make all my staff feel guilty about going for training. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I mean, it is it is difficult. We, we struggle. We've got two staff out at training this week and that has caused us an immense problem in the office um, just to purely in terms of having the right numbers to do the job. So it is it is a luxury, I think, for people to go on, on particularly lengthy training and we don't have the budget for it. The key, I think, and I, and I personally advocate these sorts of things as well, is there's lots of online training. There's lots of free training that you can access. Um, you have to take responsibility as an individual and not expect that an organisation is going to give you everything. You've got to then look at, you know, developing yourself. And that's why CPD, you know, you, you've got to be the one driving your own development. I'll help you and I'll provide guidance. But actually, you know, it's down to you if you put the time in um, and I'll support as much as I can. So it, it is a challenge. I think networking is immensely important. It's just difficult to do it. But then, you know, the online tools, the digital tools, the chats that go on Twitter and various other things, those are ways of, of networking, albeit, you know, kind of um, remotely, but but you do get the chance to to converse with people, to learn out, learn new things. Yeah. So we try and do that. I think for us in terms of um, APCOM, which is the Association of Police Communicators, what we try and do through that is pick up the broad training requirements, media law and social media law particularly, that we can offer around the country um, and that forces then won't have to pay for themselves. So we, we try and take away some of those elements uh, and provide it. And, and that always goes down really well um, as well. But just one kind of other thing I would say in terms of the future of public service for us in Greater Manchester, it's going to be very different. So whereas um, obviously I'm looking at national police communications with some of the work I do, we're very much now in a devolution where Greater Manchester public services will be coming together really closely um, and that therefore will drive, I think, some much closer working on the public services communication side. Well, of course, in terms of uh, you talking about free tools and training, this podcast is obviously free to download, so I'm sure you, you guys will be sharing it with all your teams and colleagues around the country. Um, Wendy, we've, we've focused the entire podcast pretty much on your report. Final question to you. Where can our listeners go and download a copy? It's been added to the CIPR website today, so that would be the place to go to. Brilliant. OK, we're done for another show. Um, thanks again to my three guests for joining me today. Amanda Coleman uh, on the line, Wendy Moran and Bridget Hearn here in the studio. Um, as Wendy just said, as, as just a quick reminder, the uh, Influence for Impact report can be downloaded from the CIPR's website. Um, and you can keep up to date with other work from the CIPR's local public services group by following them on Twitter using at CIPRLPS. If you want to get involved in this series of podcasts, then you can drop me a line via Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith. Um, thanks for listening and goodbye.